Living a life of intention starts within. Dora and I are excited to help you find the path to co-mindfulness living through our co-mindfulness masterclass. Our seven co-mindfulness principles will take you on a remarkable path towards health and happiness. For more information and to sign up for the masterclass, visit comindfulnessproject.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Hi, I'm Trisha. Dora and I are excited to share an exclusive episode on Health Gig from our 2020 Co-Mindfulness Virtual Summit. Our 2020 Co-Mindfulness Summit was packed with information from world-leading health and lifestyle experts. And in this episode, we are excited to share Dr. Mark Hyman's presentation on the importance of immunorejuvenation in the time of COVID-19. I'm going to share with you about a concept that I think all of us might be interested in today called immunorejuvenation, which is the idea that we actually have the ability to rejuvenate and enhance the function of our immune system. But in this time of COVID, we're increasingly threatened by our underlying poor health. And that's what I wanna talk about today. How do we fix our poor metabolic health that's driving and increasing our risk for COVID-19? And we're also gonna talk about how to do that through this incredible new science called functional medicine. You may not have heard about it, but it's essentially a way of thinking about the body as a system, as a whole integrated system where everything is connected and that you can restore health, not by treating disease, but by optimizing the function of all your basic biological systems, which you probably have heard somewhat about, whether it's your microbiome or your immune system or your energy production system or your communication systems. These are the things we focus on in functional medicine. So we don't treat diseases specifically, we enhance health. And that's why we can focus on talking about immunorejuvenation. So before I get into that, I want to share some pretty bad news, which is that We are increasingly a sick society, and chronic disease affects over 6 out of 10 of us in America. 4 out of 10 have basically 2 or more diseases. 75% are overweight. 42% are obese. Now, when I was born, which was about 60 years ago, 5%, just 5% of Americans are obese. Now it's 42%. And when we look at the conditions that are existing in those who get very sick or die from COVID-19, it is all related to poor metabolic health and chronic disease. Diabetes, obesity, kidney disease, heart disease, lung disease. These are all conditions that are driven primarily by our poor industrialized processed diet, which is about 60% of our calories. So why are we seeing this happen? Well, it's this perfect storm of coronavirus, which is a pandemic, meaning the pandemic of being overfat. And that doesn't mean just being overweight. It means you could be thin and actually be what we call skinny fat or thin on the outside, fat on the inside because of the deposition of fat around your belly at increased risk for immunosuppression and and dysfunctional immune systems. So when you look at the deaths, 94 to 97% of COVID deaths are in those with obesity or chronic disease by being over fat. 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy. That means in English that we all have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and are overweight in some level. And when you have this process in your body going on, particularly around the belly fat, it's very serious because it suppresses your immune system. It increases overall inflammation in your body. It increases deaths from just a regular viral flu. It means you shed virus a lot longer, so you're going to be actually contagious a lot longer. And vaccines, which we're hoping will save us, 
may not save you because they don't work as well in people who are immunosuppressed because of being overweight or having a chronic disease. This whole process of hyperinflammation that people die of from COVID called the cytokine storm, that's occurring in these patients because their own immune system is already primed for inflammation. It's already pre-inflamed, which is produced by the inflammatory molecules in the fat cells around your belly, because those belly fat cells produce inflammatory molecules that are driving inflammation throughout your body. And when COVID hits, it's like gasoline on fire. Not only that, but we're a massive nutritionally deficient society. 80% of us are deficient in vitamin D. 90 plus percent of us are deficient in one or more nutrients at the minimum, minimum level by the RDA that's set for what we should be eating to prevent scurvy or rickets or pellagra, all these horrible deficiency diseases. So it's omega-3s, it's magnesium, it's zinc, it's iron, it's vitamin D. If you're low in vitamin D, your risk of getting COVID-19, it goes up by 77%. I mean, that is a quick fix that just costs pennies a day to take your vitamin D pill. If your vitamin D level is optimal, if you're getting sick with COVID, which you're less likely to, your risk of ending up in the ICU is reduced by 95%. There's nothing that comes close to this effect. So when you look at what we can do with nutrition, it's very, very powerful. Now, we are a very overweight society. We see the growth, uh, literally the growth of us as a society with increasing obesity and belly fat and diabetes and prediabetes. And you see the prevalence of obesity and prediabetes in patients where over the last 30, 40 years, we've seen this dramatic spike. We're basically all going to be overweight or diabetic pretty soon. 88% of us are already in poor metabolic health. So we have to take this very seriously. And the reason we're in poor metabolic health is not an accident. It's our industrial ultra-processed diet, processed food, flour, sugar, refined oils, additives, chemicals. All these things lead to poor metabolic health and increase our disease risk. What's frightening to me, even more frightening, is the fact that 11 million people die every year from not eating enough good food and eating too much bad food. I think that's a gross underestimate. Like I said, only 12.2% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And chronic disease affects so many. And what I mean by chronic disease is heart disease, cancer, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, kidney disease. These are all dietary diseases. So we need to completely rethink our approach. That's what functional medicine is, what I've been doing for 30 years. And I'm going to share with you a little bit of the framework. At the root of it is the idea that food is medicine, not just calories or energy. It's actually instructions that communicates to your body. And that's the main thing we use to regulate and create health in the body. So we need to completely rethink our approach to medicine, health, food, disease. It's very, very important. So we've been focused so much on treating disease, we forgot to do the thing that actually has the most effect, which is creating health. So when I learned medicine, I didn't take a class called the science of creating health 101. I just took diseases. And it turns out that learning how to create health is a far better approach to treating disease than actually treating it directly. And we see these various themes that are emerging in the science that are universal, underlying all diseases. Inflammation is one of them causes heart disease, cancer, diabetes, arthritis, autoimmune diseases. Our microbiome, our gut, is enormously important in our overall health and well-being. And we see that it's probably the most underappreciated organ in our body that drives so many chronic illnesses and is really uh, also the source of health if it's a healthy gut. We also see our energy factories, our mitochondria, are critically important in making energy. And as they get injured by our processed diet and toxins, we end up declining in our health and our strength and we lose muscle. Toxins also are ubiquitous and have enormous effects on our health negatively, and we need to be aware that we need to learn how to detoxify. Functional medicine is personalized medicine. It's not the same treatment for everybody with the same disease. So not everybody with depression gets the same treatment. Not everybody with rheumatoid arthritis gets the same treatment. It's personalized based on the root causes. 
And it's really about connecting the dots, which is what we do in functional medicine. So what is functional medicine? Essentially, it's a system of thinking about solving complex chronic problems. We call it systems medicine or network medicine, how everything's connected in the body as a network. And this is what we use as a map. And we look at what are the predisposing factors, what are the lifestyle factors. So disease really occurs as a result of your environment, your lifestyle choices and toxins and other stresses, interacting with your genes and your predisposing factors to regulate these basic functions in the body. Your gut and assimilation, defense and repair, which is your immune system, your energy system, your detoxification system, how you get rid of junk in your body and waste, how you transport things around your circulatory lymphatic systems, your communication systems, which is your hormones, neurotransmitters, and your structural system. And all these are influenced by our thoughts and feelings and spiritual life. So the environment gene issue is very funny to me because we often say, well, it's, you know, it's a genetic and, you know, you're predestined to get diabetes if you have family history of diabetes. That's just not true. So we call this the exposome. What are our genes exposed to? How are those influencing the functions of our body? And the good news about this is that we can do something about it. You might have a predisposition to a disease, but you might not be predestined to it if you actually change the environment in which you're living. And all the specialties, all the ologies just don't make sense anymore. The body is one interconnected system. So we need a GPS system that works. Uh, now I just want to share the story of Janice, who you know, was a classic example of someone who had a foodborne illness, literally, and was 66 years old, had type 2 diabetes for many years, was on insulin injections, had heart failure, had heart attacks and stents put in. She had kidney failure starting. She had liver failure starting. And she also ended up having high blood pressure and was just a mess. And her doctors put her on all sorts of medications and, and she was still like this. It wasn't really helping. And her blood sugar was out of control and her cholesterol was out of control, even on the medication. So we wanted to use a new form of drug, which actually is incredibly effective at curing and reversing and treating most chronic disease. It works faster, better, and cheaper than any drug ever developed. It affects thousands of genes and hormones and improves your immune system and optimizes your microbiome and your brain chemistry. And it's as simple as what you put at the end of your fork. What you put at the end of your fork is more powerful than any drug you'll ever find in a prescription bottle. And it works faster, better, and it's cheaper. It's available to everybody. Food really is medicine. It's not like medicine. It's actually medicine. And I think it's one of the most important discoveries of the last 50 years. It's like code and upregulates or downgrades your biology with every single bite. It literally is instructions. It's regulating every function. There are 37 billion billion chemical reactions every second, every second in your body. I can't even grapple with that number. It's so large. And they all require the basic nutrients to function. Janice went from that processed food diet to a whole foods anti-inflammatory diet, what I like to call the Pegan diet, which I'll tell you more about in a minute. And she, within three days, now get this, in three days, she got off her insulin. Within three months, she reversed her diabetes, her heart failure, her kidneys got better, and she ended up having incredible amounts of energy and got off her medications and lost 43 pounds. In a year, she lost 116 pounds and was really, really healthy. And she went back to work and she's functioning and she's doing really so well. And it wasn't a miracle. It was just using good science and the right food to optimize her health. And I'll tell you what that diet looked like in a minute. These are common stories we see, and it's not about a gastric bypass. In fact, a study came out recently that showed that there was no difference between just changing your diet and having a gastric bypass, and it had the same benefit if people changed their diet enough. The solution really is food. And when I say food, I mean food. I don't mean food like substances. I don't mean factory-made science projects. I don't mean things like a Twinkie, which really is not really anything resembling food. Basically, you want to eat food that rots. If it doesn't rot, you probably don't want to eat it. So it's just food. And I wrote a book recently called Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? Because it's so confusing for people. 
uh, and a cookbook that went along with it, What the Heck Should I Cook?, where I go into great detail about the science of what we know, what we don't know, and how to come up with a set of simple guidelines and principles of what to eat and also what to cook. So the question is, what's the best diet for us humans? You know, what is it? Is it a different diet to treat diabetes than to cure Alzheimer's, a different diet for autoimmune disease or heart disease? Well, the truth is there are some subtle differences, but the basic principles are the same for all of us. Eat real food. <laughs> and often I speak at churches and I try to explain it like this. I say, it's really simple. Just when you go to eat something, ask yourself a simple question. Did God make this or did man make this? Did God make a Twinkie? Nope. Did God make an avocado? Yep. So it's pretty simple. And if you focus on that, you often will actually be able to completely fix your diet and just get rid of things that were made in a factory unless they're simple, right? If it's a canned salmon or a canned tomatoes and you recognize the ingredients and it's real food, that's fine. So what are the principles of a pecan diet? And I was sort of called the pecan diet as a joke because I was sitting in a conference once between two doctors who were arguing. One was a vegan cardiologist. The other was a paleo doctor. And I said, well, if you're vegan and you're paleo, I must be pecan. And everybody laughed. And I thought that was a funny joke. But then I began to think about it and realized that they had everything in common except where they get their protein and that they had far more in common with each other than the traditional American diet or this we call the standard American diet or SAD diet. I said, what are the things that we kind of can agree on? And let's talk about what does the science say and combine that with common sense. And I'm writing a book. It's coming out February of 2021 called The Pegan Diet, 21 Practical Principles for Reclaiming Your Health in a Nutritionally Confusing World. The biggest culprit here is sugar and starch. We eat 152 pounds of sugar and 133 pounds of flour for every man, woman, and child in America. Now, I'm not having that much, so probably some of you are a little more. That's a lot. That's almost a pound a day per person of flour and sugar, which, by the way, flour is worse than sugar for your blood sugar. So you want to get rid of that stuff or just use it as a recreational treat. Next, we want to eat a diet that's very colorful in non-starchy vegetables, the rainbow colors, because all those colors contain medicine. There are 25,000 phytochemicals in the plant kingdom, many of which we still are learning about, which have medicinal properties that regulate your biology. You might have had of curcumin or ginger or garlic or the polyphenols in olive oil or the proanthocyanidins in berries or the catechins in green tea. These are all medicines, and we should be eating those on a regular basis. The next is we're going to eat fruit. Fruit's fine, but we shouldn't be binging on fruit, especially if you're overweight or diabetic, and you shouldn't be eating super high glycemic fruit all the time, like a whole bag of grapes or things like that. Next, you want lots of good fats. Fats are not bad. They won't make you fat. I've written a whole book about this called Eat Fat, Get Thin, but lots of omega-3 fats from wild fish and certain nuts and seeds. Olive oil, avocados, nuts and seeds, as I said, are a great source of fats. Not so many of the refined oils, the processed oils. They're industrial products, and they're in everything, and they're just a sign of poor quality food. Dairy, you know, there's a lot of controversy about dairy, but it's not nature's perfect food unless you're a calf. And so you want to avoid or limit most dairy except you could try sheep and goat cheese, which are better. Or if you're lucky, you can try to find cows that have A2 casein, which are like Guernsey cows or Jersey cows, which are better tolerated and less inflammatory. These are aspirational principles. We can't follow them 100%. I certainly don't. But if we can design a perfect diet, ideally have more organic foods, whole foods, fresh foods, local foods. If we do eat animals, and that's a whole other conversation. If you're interested in learning more about what I think about it, you can read my books, listen to my podcast. But we want to eat animals that have been raised regeneratively, that restore soil, provide humane conditions for the animals, and provide higher quality food, like grass-fed, 
We want low mercury fish and from sustainable fisheries. We want to get rid of a lot of the gluten grains because they're inflammatory, especially American wheat, and eat moderate amounts of non-gluten grains. If you're eating a ton of starch, even if it's a whole grain, it can be difficult if you're metabolically unhealthy, which most of us are. Now, if you're exercising and you're fit, you can tolerate more. That's fine. Beans are great too, but a side dish. Obviously, nobody should be signing up for eating pesticides and antibiotics and hormones and glyphosate and additives and chemicals and preservatives in the diet. It's just not really what should be for lunch. So remember, food is medicine. It's the most powerful drug. It's available to you at every meal. You eat three times a day, and it's the most potent thing you can do every day to restore and regenerate your health and to regenerate your immune system. And all the ways of eating that I talked about reduce inflammation, improve your metabolic health actually adding a, a basic supplement of multivitamin, fish oil, vitamin D will go a long way to help because you'll get the zinc, you'll get selenium and many other things we know help with COVID. One study in China found that if your selenium levels were adequate, you were three times less likely to get COVID. And if you were having low selenium levels, your risk of dying was five times higher. So you want to also, you know, eat a lot of these potent medicinal compounds, for example, in the broccoli family and the garlic and onion family. Those are great classes that detoxify you. You want to exercise regularly, which also helps your immune system. You want to make sure you do relaxation, whether it's meditation or prayer, yoga, whatever turns you on, deep breathing, that's great. And you want to make sure you get adequate sleep. We all need adequate deep sleep, probably seven to eight hours each a night. And we're, many Americans are not getting that. And again, some basic supplements. You don't have to go crazy, but a good multi-fish oil, vitamin D, and maybe a little magnesium is important for most people. So if you want to learn more about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, which is fixing our food system, <laughs> because we are in a crisis moment where our population is sicker than ever. COVID is ravaging those with poor metabolic health caused by our food system. And I want to share with you a little bit about how we got here and how we can get out of a very difficult system that is perpetuating a cascading series of problems from poor health and chronic disease, its economic consequences, the consequences of how we grow our food in the environment and climate, and also the effects on the poor, minorities, even on education, national security. These issues are all connected. So we're going to talk about what I call a food fix. The good news is there's going to be some shocking statistics and stories here. But at the end of the day, this is a hopeful message because we identify the problem, we can fix it. I, mean, I love this concept of becoming a regenitarian. No one can be against being regenerated. How do we regenerate our health? How do we regenerate our communities? How do we regenerate rural communities? How do we regenerate our economy? How do we regenerate the soil? How do we regenerate ecosystem, the environment? Who's against that? <laughs> and it's a very powerful concept that allows us to use a filter to decide what we need to do to restore and regenerate our own society, our human health and planetary health and more. All this also connects to this idea of regenerative medicine. It's not just how we treat diseases, but how do we create optimal health? How do we rejuvenate our biology using the science of what we call functional medicine, which we just talked about? How do we regenerate the earth? We are in a crisis now where we're losing so much soil, and we'll talk about that, but we can really change the narrative about this. And I encourage you, if you're interested in regenerative agriculture, to watch a movie that just came out on Netflix called Kiss the Ground. This chronic disease pandemic, meeting this COVID pandemic, and it's dwarfing it, really. I mean, this is affecting nearly every American, directly or indirectly. Expenses are just skyrocketing. You know, it used to be 5% of the federal budget was for health care in 1970. It's now 30%. And it's on track to be 100% as our population gets older and sicker and fatter. So why is this happening? And how did this occur? Well, it occurred to me that a lot of this had to do with the food system. And 
as a doctor sitting in my office treating patients for diabetes or whatever it was, and began to realize that food was the biggest driver of their diseases. And I was curing them with food, but then I began to think about looking upstream, because functional medicine is all about causes and about why. So why do they have diabetes? They're eating the wrong food. Why are they eating the wrong food? It's the food system. Why do we have the food system we have? It's our food policies. Why do we have the food policies we have? It's the food industry. So I realized I couldn't cure diabetes in my office. I had to cure it on the farm, in the grocery store, in the kitchen, in the restaurants. That's where diabetes is cured. And so I really began to dig into all these interconnections of how everything is interconnected around food. You probably won't hear about this in politics, in terms of elections. It should be the number one issue, because if we solve food, we solve chronic disease, we solve the cause of the biggest drain and the cause of the biggest amount of our federal deficit, <laughs> which is the chronic illness burden. We solve the environmental issues we have. We solve the climate issues we have. We solve the ability to rejuvenate communities that are suffering. We help our kids learn better. We improve our national security. We're going to go through all that. And it may seem overwhelming, but there's a lot of change happening. There's a lot of good things happening. A lot of companies are actually, businesses are innovating. Billions of dollars are flowing into food and ag tech to solve these problems. And even in their policies, a lot of things are happening in Washington. They're moving things forward. So I'm excited about it. And this is really about connecting the dots. So why do we have this? The food industry is the number one industry in the world. By far, compared to every other lobby group, agribusiness and food were the number one funders. In just one year, for one bill, which was the GMO labeling law. And by the way, every other country in the world labels GMO, including China and Russia. So we're not in great company by not doing it. I think Syria might not be uh, labeling, but other than that, we're probably it. They spent $192 million in one year on one bill to fight the labeling. So this is what's happening. This money is flowing into Washington and you know they're being educated by lobbyists. The lawmakers are well-intentioned. They're trying to do a good job. They're focused on trying to solve problems, but they're not hearing from people like me or other scientists and academics because they're getting enormous amounts of, quote, education and policies written up and regulations written up by the food industry that they provide for them. So we have an enormous food industry. They're not all in cahoots with each other, but together they make up the biggest industry on the planet, big food companies, fertilizer companies, seed and agriculture, chemical companies. These are all the ones that are driving this problem. And our policies essentially are not providing the right guidelines. They're not coordinated. They're not intersecting. In fact, there are probably, you know, maybe eight to 10 agencies that are directly or indirectly regulating food policy from the USDA to the FDA to the EPA, Department of Defense, Department of Education. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Department of Agriculture, obviously, they regulate all of these policies, which are often at odds with each other. Just one example, we subsidize in various ways through crop insurance and other ways the growing of commodity crops, basically corn, wheat, and soy that get turned into processed food, which is 60% of our calories. Food companies buy those products and they turn into highly processed food. In our dietary guidelines, we tell people not to eat that food. <laughs> we say, you should eat whole foods. You should not have a lot of sugar. You should not have processed foods. But the same USDA spends $735 billion over 10 years, about $75 billion a year on SNAP or food stamps for the poor, which is 46 million Americans now, even even more, I think. And 75% of that food that they're eating is junk food, which the government's paying for. So soda is 10% of that pie. So 10% of the food stamp program goes for soda, and it's causing enormous ill health on the other end, which is costing us enormous amounts of money in Medicare and Medicaid bills. So we're paying for it on the farm. We're paying for it to be given to the 
low socioeconomic groups in this country. We're paying for the health consequences. And there's even a fourth way we're paying for it, which is the collateral damage or externalities, as they're often called, that are the damage to the environment and the climate and the soil, by the way, we farm. So who's paying for <laughs> And the policies aren't connected. Food labels are a problem. Our agricultural policy, I mentioned, are a problem. Our lack of regulation, for example, of things in our environment, like glyphosate, which is extremely toxic to the soil, toxic to our microbiome, has been linked to cancer, is really being used extensively in farming. It's the number one agricultural chemical, and the EPA allows it to be used where it's not used in many, many other countries. There's a lot of fights against food taxation and regulations. We allow unrestricted marketing, we'll talk about. So these are all challenges. Just one bill alone, the Farm Bill, half a billion dollars is spent by the food industry just to regulate that. If basically we were eating what the government was funding in terms of agriculture, we wouldn't be eating what the My Plate says, which is half your plate is fruits and vegetables and protein and grains, a little bit of dairy. We'd be eating basically 61% of our diet is refined grains, refined oils. We'd have a giant cotton napkin because we subsidize cotton, a little bit of tobacco, a little bit of meat, but we also would be having less than half a percent of vegetables. <laughs> so we're told that 50% of our plate is vegetables, but only half of the, quote, subsidies go to vegetables, and it's almost all to apples. Also, it affects our kids. There's a tremendous achievement cap. Our kids can't learn well in school. They're academically challenged because of their brain not functioning on the food they're eating. There's a really a wonderful report by the Center for Disease Control about nutritional effects on academic performance, showing poor attention, poor focus, poor grades, disruptive behavior, and so on. So we know the science is very clear here that by improving kids' nutrition, you improve their brain function, their academic performance, and their lifelong success. So we're seeing 40% of kids being overweight. We're seeing one in 10 kids with ADD, and we know this is a big issue. There's a tremendous advances in medicine right now in psychiatry, where we used to think these were emotional or psychological problems. We now realize they're often nutritional or metabolic issues. And Harvard has a new department of nutritional psychiatry. Stanford has a department of metabolic psychiatry. I have both the women who run those departments on my podcast. It's, it's really tremendous to see the change in our thinking. So ADD is this other huge issue, which again is very much food related and can be helped. This is considered a healthy lunch at school. You've got ketchup, which is a vegetable. You've got potatoes, which are a vegetable, deep fried tater tots. You've got deep fried chicken nuggets. You've got milk, which is often low fat milk or fat free milk, which actually has been shown to actually make kids more hungry and gain weight. And you've got cookies, which is more sugar. So this is what kids are eating, and it's really a tragedy. But, you know, we see incredible programs where there's school gardens and they're teaching kids cooking and nutrition. There's a real renaissance in this. And these kids actually start to get connected to their food, and they do so, so well. Prisons also are an issue. Prison food is terrible. I remember receiving a letter from one prisoner once who had read my book in prison, changed his diet. I don't know how he did that. And he said he realized a lot of his violent behavior his whole life was really because of his diet, and he felt like a totally different person. We know that by changing out healthy food for junk food in the prison diets, you can reduce violent crime by 56%. If you add a multivitamin, you reduce it by 80%. So we know that our brain function and our behavior and our divisiveness and our conflict, part of that also may be due to our horrible American diet. We also are targeting the poor minorities. This is really unfortunate, but a lot of these communities are more severely affected by the pandemic. And where there's, for example, 30% of the population may be African-American, it may account for 70% of the deaths. A lot of reasons for that. But one of them is the predominance of obesity and chronic disease that's driven by these hyper-targeting of these communities by these fast food restaurants and by advertising and marketing. You know, COVID and African-Americans is a really huge issue. 
Also, the military issues are huge. I mean, we talked about national security, but a report called Unhealthy and Unprepared, written by 700 retired admirals and generals who said we are in trouble, that 70% of military recruits get rejected because they're unfit to fight. What was shocking in this report, and you can Google it and read it yourself, what shocked me was that over 70% of the evacuations from Iraq and Afghanistan were not for war injuries. They were for obesity-related complications. You know, I had dinner in Washington with someone who worked in the Defense Department, and she said that on the bases, they're just full of fast food, and existing soldiers are often not combat-ready because they are unhealthy because of the diet. This has to change. So working on an approach to really change the policies that we have in this country, similar to what Bono did with the one campaign that raised $87 billion under President George Bush and developed PEPFAR and provided $87 billion for poverty and AIDS relief in Africa. So we call this the Food Fix Campaign, a prescription for fixing America's chronic disease epidemic. We'd love you all to be part of it. And we need to really start with changing the food policies. One idea that's very important, I hope in the next administration we can get this done, is create a new office of the National Director of Food Nutrition and also a new National Institute of Nutrition. I mean, there's National Institute of Nutrition in many, many countries, except not, not here. You know, we have a very, very small amount of budget there. The NIH had a report on their strategy and agenda, and food was only mentioned in there once, and that was in the context of the Food and Drug Administration. <laughs> so we need a lot of work on this. We need to start implementing food as medicine in our programs. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, actually can start paying for food as medicine for certain populations by healthy food prescriptions that would save $100 billion over a population's lifetime. It would be cost-effective, and it would basically be only covering 30% of the food costs, not even all of it. We'd have less cases of heart disease, diabetes, and it's more cost-effective than many current medical treatments. The fresh food pharmacy from Geisinger was a great effort where they gave food insecure diabetics fresh whole food and taught them how to use it and cook it. And they saved enormous amounts of money, 80% cost. So they went from an average cost per patient of $248,000 a year to $192,000 reduction in that cost. So the medical system today will pay for the $248,000 for medical care, but will not pay for $2,400 of food. That has to change. And we need to be writing prescriptions for food and not drugs more often. Also, the government has enormous leverage on food purchasing programs. They can decide to buy for whether it's the military or schools or for other organizations, institutes, enormous on state, city, local levels, federal levels, food that, that meets certain criteria that's healthy, that's local, that's humane, that's sustainable, that's fair in terms of the workers. And the California has done this and they're scaling these programs all over the country and they're pretty exciting. The Federal Trade Commission needs to get in gear here because even though we have the First Amendment, it doesn't mean that we should be marketing kids who are most vulnerable and can't detect fiction or reality by the time they're eight. They just can't tell whether it's a commercial or whether it's real life. And they get duped into believing these foods are healthy. There's pervasive everywhere. There's something called advert games where they literally will have embedded food products into the games that are free on social media. And I think last year, 500 billion ads on Facebook for junk food for kids. I mean, it's just staggering. And this is stealth marketing. The companies, in, I think in 2014, spent $17 billion targeting kids. So shouldn't we protect our kids? I mean, 40% of our kids are overweight. The future generations are at risk. I mean, if there was a foreign country doing what we're doing to our kids, we'd probably go to war to protect them. In other countries, this has been very effective. For example, in Chile, there was a doctor who was the president of Chile and a doctor who was the vice president of the Senate. And they decided they were going to do something about this growing epidemic of obesity in, in adults and children. And so they created sweeping changes, not only soda tax, which we've done in this country, 
But they eliminated any advertising to children between six in the morning and 10 at night. They took off all the cartoon characters from the marketing, no more Tony the Tiger. They basically got rid of all the junk food in schools. They put morning labels on the front of packages and they were able to have dramatic reductions in obesity and the consumption of these foods. Eliminating the marketing was four times as effective as a soda tax in reducing consumption. Soda tax is also controversial, but you know may be very, very effective. And the science is very clear because these taxes have been studied on their impact and they do reduce consumption. They increase revenues for programs in obesity, save huge amounts of healthcare dollars. The FDA also needs to do a better job. Food labels are super confusing. Many countries have very simple labels. Green is good for you, or yellow or orange, uh, be cautious. And red, don't eat it, it's going to kill you. <laughs> and by having these, they actually work. Uh, the studies show these work. We need to get rid of the antibiotics in food. Why do we have 30 million pounds of antibiotics used to prevent disease in animals? It's because of overcrowding. It's because of the inhumane factory farms, which has also bad consequences for the environment and is causing antibiotic resistance that kills 700,000 people a year around the world and costs over $2 trillion in healthcare costs. Not all of it's related to the antibiotics in animals, but a lot of it is. And they don't regulate that. And the food industry and drug industry are evolving. And the FDA, you know, the recent FDA commissioner, as soon as he was done, he went to work for a big drug company. So it's just, it's unfortunate, but this is how the system works. They also allow all kinds of things that really are not considered safe to eat. We call them grass substances or generally recognized as safe. So we had trans fats in the food for 50 years. And we knew for 30 years it was dangerous, but we still let it in there. Foods like azodicarbonamide, which is a softener for bread, is something that is also used in yoga mat ingredients. And it's legal here. In Singapore, if you use it in a food product, you get fined $450,000 and you get 15 years in jail. <laughs> in Europe, they don't allow a lot of the additives and chemicals and preservatives that we do here. The USDA also needs to change. They need to change the dietary guidelines to make them more in line with the science. Unfortunately, for example, in the last guidelines, they were the scientists were prohibited from looking at the effects of ultra-processed food on our health, which doesn't make any sense, and they need to be more in line with the science. A lot of them are corrupted. We need to reform SNAP to put nutrition guidelines back in SNAP. You know, we have guidelines for school lunches, we have guidelines for women, infants, and children's program, but we don't for the SNAP or the food stamp program, and that's why we see the people who consume food stamp foods tend to be more sick and unhealthy. So those are all the health and human consequences, but there's also planetary and environmental consequences because what we're doing to ourselves, we're also doing to the planet. And it turns out that the entire food system as a whole, end to end, is the number one cause of climate change, including deforestation, food waste, the processing, packaging, transportation, the industrial farming, the soil erosion. We've lost a third of our topsoil. We do deforestation, which is massive. We lose 7 billion trees a year. Our soil's eroding. The UN says we have only 60 harvests left meaning we will have no soil to grow food in because it's being eroded by the way we're growing food by massive tilling and monocrops and current agriculture and the chemicals which destroyed the microbiology of the soil. We're also dumping nitrogen fertilizer, which has many bad effects. And one of them is it, it kills all the fish and sea life in the waterways where the drains off from the farm. So in the Gulf of Mexico, which drains the Mississippi River, there's 212,000 metric tons of fish that are dying every year because... <laughs> They're being killed by the nitrogen runoff that causes algal blooms. In Lake Erie, where I work in Cleveland, it was massive algal blooms. And these are totally caused by our system. We're seeing increasing wildfires. We're seeing increasing hurricanes. It's just devastating. We're seeing increased use of pesticides and chemicals, which have adverse consequences on our health. We're seeing loss of pollinator species. 75% of all pollinator species are gone, and we need those for agriculture. So we can regenerate soil. We can regenerate the system. And this is what's so exciting to me. In the face of all this destruction, there's real hope.
And we can change the farming system, which is going to be actually regenerating soil, conserving water, reducing the use of agrochemicals or eliminating them, creating soil and building soil, creating more food, better quality food, more nutrient-dense food, and making the farmers far more money. One farmer, Gabe Brown, has done regenerative agriculture, and he literally has created a profit 20 times out of his neighbors while producing far more food on the same land. So it's really about understanding how to use animals integrated in the agriculture. It's not the cow, it's the how and need to end factory farms. We also need to understand that if we raise animals in a way that's in harmony with nature, we can actually build soil like the bison did in this country and build up to 50 feet of soil. And Gabe Brown, so I was telling you about, had this incredible journey, you should read about it from dirt to soil, about how he built a whole regenerative farm. We also need to realize that a lot of chemicals from the farming are in our foods. If you were looking at glyphosate, which has been linked to cancer, there's been billions of dollars of lawsuits, settlements on this. If you look at your Cheerios, <laughs> if you were to measure how much glyphosate is in there from the spraying of the oats and so forth, it's more than the vitamin D and B12, which is actually added to it to fortify it. So this is not good for us. But good news is that Kellogg's announced they were getting all the glyphosate and Roundup out of their products within five years. It's really hopeful. We see General Mills and Danone committing to regenerative agriculture. So there's a lot of big industry and companies that are starting to move in this direction. Uh, we also need to stop our food waste because we waste a lot of our food and 40% of it's wasted. And the good news is this recent administration has put together a food waste reduction alliance with the FDA, the AEPA, and the USDA. And that's really good because it's a big contributor to climate change. Uh, in Massachusetts, there's a law passed that you can't throw out your garbage if you make a ton or more of food waste. So they have to find a way to get rid of it. And this company called Vanguard Renewables partnered with local dairy farmers who are losing money built these anaerobic digesters and they throw in the food and they throw in the poop from the cows and it digests and it produces electricity for 1,500 homes. And they, farmers get free energy. They get 100,000 a year, which is more than they ever made. And they sell the energy back to the grid and they provide electricity for 1,500 homes from one farm. That's just by dealing with the food waste problem. So we have to all work on the change. We have to all be the change we want to see in the world. And all of us can do something. I've written a book called Food Fix. If you go to my website, foodfixbook.com, you can find a guide. It's called the Food Fix Action Guide. So if you feel like you want to do something, there's over 20 different ideas that you can do yourself personally. There's ideas for policy change, for business change, for agricultural change. So it's really all in there. We can start to become politically active if we feel like it. And you know, I think you're always making a choice, right? Eating is a political choice. It's an agricultural choice. It's a health choice. And so this is a guide to Food Policy Action, which is a group that rates different congressmen and senators on their voting records on food. And unfortunately, some of them aren't that great. And they were able to actually use uh, social media and other ways to get them out of Congress. So we actually can have more of an impact than we think. So we all have to solve this together. The health of our human population, the health of the planet depend on it. And I hope you can all be part of that change together and help us save ourselves and save the world because we need it. I'd love you to be part of the Food Fix campaign. So join us whenever you can. And of course, you can learn more about all my work at the doctor's pharmacy. And I hope you've enjoyed this little detour into the big picture on the food system, how everything's connected and how we can be actors and really making the change we need to see, and even driving our lawmakers to do the right thing, which I know they want to do. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, you can learn more about me going to my website, drhyman.com, Doctors Pharmacy Podcast, wherever you hear podcasts, and uh, find me on social media at Dr. Mark Hyman. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.
To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.